Thank you for joining me for this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. First things first, if you want to support this work, you can do that through several different means. Of course, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, share this with anyone you feel would benefit from listening to these episodes. If you're on Apple Podcasts listening to this, please consider leaving a kind review, a review of some sort, but a kind review, hopefully. That would really help with the visibility of the podcast. And if you really want to sustain this work financially, you want to do that on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborntheWilderness. That's it, everybody. Enjoy the episode. Author, teacher, and editor Max Haven joins us for this episode. He is here to discuss his most recent book, Palm Oil, The Grease of Empire, recently published through Pluto Books. As Silvia Federici states, this book, quote, powerfully demonstrates how, by following the history of a key commodity, we can reconstruct the logic of imperial capitalism, its destruction of land and bodies, its drive to constantly reduce the means of our reproduction, its relentless production of oppressive regimes, end quote. So in this discussion, Max Haven describes the contours of such subjects as commodity fetishism and human sacrifice, as well as points to the very straight line that shoots through the heinous histories of Chattel slavery and Western imperialism to the formation of the modern global capitalist order. And he does this by focusing on one primary and ubiquitous product we all throughout the course of our lives have consumed countless times and in countless ways palm oil. By describing the matrix of exploitation tied up in the production and distribution of this commodity, Max Haven manages to unveil the true nature of the global order we live and labor under. If you want to learn more about Max and his work, you can go to his website, maxhaven.com. Haven is spelled H-A-I-V-E-N. You can learn more about his previous books, Art After Money, Money After Art, and Revenge Capitalism. And please consider purchasing a copy of Palm Oil through the bookshop.org affiliate link that I will have down in the description and on the website, lastbornwilderness.com. All right, everybody, that's it. Thank you very much for your attention and a special thanks to Max Haven for taking the time to have this conversation and for writing this really incredible book. Please enjoy this interview with Max Haven. You know, palm oil is one of those things that has been... I guess it's something that's just been coming up in the minds of people more and more in a sense of like approaching it, especially with environmentalism and, Mm. you know, like what's going on in Southeast Asia with these palm oil plantations, the exploitation, whether we're talking about, you know, workers, of course, and uh, also just the um, horribly ecologically destructive practices to to make space for these plantations. And Mm -hmm. of course, the really like heartbreaking images of, orangutans you know their habitats being destroyed it's, it's just like heartrending and, and horrific and of course i think that's when people think of palm oil now they associate it with that level of exploitation mm-hmm. um but the fact is is palm oil has a long history and i don't think most people including myself really understood how tied up palm oil is in not only just the global capitalist system and how it operates but like the history of of empire itself, like the British Empire in particular, uh, and its uh, colonization of Western Africa, and 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 just, I mean, you really dig extensively into that history. Um, 
But I really just want to draw, before we really jump into this book, I, I do want to tie into something I mentioned before we started recording, which you had just published an article in Boston Review yesterday. It kind of popped up on my radar in researching your book, um, in which you you kind of provide a summary of your book throughout this article, but you begin by talking about the war in Ukraine hmm. and um, how that war is impacting the global economy, which is obvious for many, but is tied up directly in, in the, the, the palm oil industry as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I just really wanted to ask at the very beginning if you could talk about this war in Ukraine, how it's uh, tied up in your work researching uh, and exploring the subject of palm oil. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Well, it's... it's um... <laughs> I think the funny thing about being in a global age is there's a kind of directness and an indirectness to everything in a globally integrated capitalist economy. So in a weird way, if you pull a thread on one side of the world, something tugs on the other side of the world. And uh, this war is is no different. So basically, um, Russia and Ukraine together produce about 70% of the world's sunflower oil. And sunflower oil is very widely used for culinary purposes in many countries around the world, um, as well as in various industrial purposes as well, and the industrial food manufacturing. Um, and essentially what's happened is because those supply chains have been disrupted and jeopardized, it's through the kind of magic of speculative financial markets, it's led to a massive spike in the price of sunflower oil. And that's led companies that would use sunflower oil for all sorts of purposes to look for alternatives. And that in turn has uh, seen speculators um, throw a lot of energy towards other edible oils, including palm oil, Mm -hmm. as well as soybean oil um, and uh, rapeseed oil or canola oil. Uh, And as a result, you've seen these massive spikes in prices around the world. And that's led to uh, environmentalists and human rights campaigners fear that maybe 10 or almost 15 years of efforts to rein in the palm oil industry will be thrown by the wayside as uh, the high price Mm -hmm. uh, encourages people to, for instance, chop down more uh, forests in Southeast Asia or Uh, Latin America to make room for palm oil plantations. Uh, It leads to a great hunger to increase production, which could mean the kind of extra, an extra layer or an extra intensification of the exploitation of migrant workers in those places. Um, And just generally more power and influence for an industry that has not been shy about using its power, influence and money to hire public relations firms um, and to otherwise try and make itself appear the palm oil industry, that is, as a kind of green capitalist panacea to all of our problems. Right. Um, so there's a lot of concerns about what this will mean. More generally, I think there's a lesson to be learned, which is just that, you know, we've, we're now 40 years into a neoliberal revolution in which one of the things that has happened is through, um, you know, encouragement from institutions like the International Monetary Fund and World Bank and other development banks, countries have been moving away from providing for their own needs and moving towards meeting their need for, for, for instance, things like cooking oil mm-hmm. on global markets. And what we're learning is that in a in a age which is no longer unipolar in geopolitical terms, <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the global markets can be very uh, easily disrupted. And in those moments, the 
the rich will generally benefit because the rich generally know how to benefit from volatility in markets and the poor of the world will pay the price both literally and metaphorically. Yeah. Uh, and that reminds me when you said that, it just reminds me of how in the past two plus years, especially there have been several things that have really disrupted the global economy uh, and supply chains and, um, and how palm oil fits into this. But like, was that, uh, that large, um, uh, what is it called? That, that large cargo ship. Uh, oh yeah. Ever given. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They got stuck in, was it the Suez canal? I believe the Suez canal. Yeah, just yeah. some technical error blocked this canal and everyone's like, yeah. you know, just affected the whole global economy like instantaneously. Um, also COVID, right? I mean, we're still mm-hmm. dealing with this mm-hmm. pandemic two years on and we're still dealing with the supply chain issues that come with that. Um, mm-hmm. And that reminds, you know, there was a part in your book uh, talking about, um, how capitalism is a system, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things, of course, but one thing it tries to do is, particularly for those here in the global north, those that seem to materially, at least in many ways, benefit from the kind of frictionless uh, uh, conveyor belts of the economy. I don't know how else to say it, but basically <laughs> the idea is to create as little friction as possible in getting products to the markets and extracting mm-hmm. it and so on. Uh, could you talk about palm oil's? Uh, I, I, yeah, this might be an interesting way to get into this as well. Is just how palm oil is such a ubiquitous commodity. It's mm-hmm. it's designed that way. It's it's in almost everything, you know. Whether mm-hmm. it's you know a, a, a component of it or you know something else, but it's it's in like everything, and mm-hmm. it feels to me that this is it, it ties in really neatly into this concept of like how economists talk about friction. Uh, could you mm-hmm. discuss that concept a bit? Sure. Well, the palm oil that is in everything today is uh, typically highly refined palm oil that has been bleached and deodorized. Um, it's very far from how humans, specifically West African people, have used palm oil for millennia, which is in its uh, sort of um, uh, virgin um, unrefined form is sort of what's often called red palm oil, um, which is a staple of the West African diet and has been for thousands of years. Um, what we have today is a form of palm oil that was kind of developed through the process of the European empire and comes to us in these kind of sealed vats. Um, and that also has been, uh, in sort of 100, 150 years of industrial chemistry has broken down into many, many different component parts. So today you would find uh, refined palm oil in the things that you might at first associate it with, like Nutella, for instance, which has been a major target of environmental and human rights campaigners, just because it's such a famous palm oil product. But it's also in the vast majority of soaps, shampoos, detergents, conditioners, cosmetics, uh, it's often in many of the medicines that we take as a as a carrier for uh, medicinal components, uh, but it can also be found in a vast variety of uh, food additives, from preservatives to emulsifiers to stabilizers. It's also an important surfacant, which is a, a technical term for a kind of um, oil that's used in industrial processes. Uh, various chemicals derived from it are used in a whole variety of industrial processes to build everything from laptop computers to cars. Uh, and beyond that, it's also quite a popular source of biofuels. Uh, and in fact, a rush to invest in green energy programs led to massive deforestation in Southeast Asia and elsewhere mm-hmm. as companies rushed to replace uh 
biodiverse forests with uh, you know palm oil monocultures to get the the fuel out of it uh, for ethanol and other fuel additives. So essentially, we live in a world that's made up of palm oil, um, and we live in and through bodies, each of us that are made or cleansed with palm oil. And and here I take up. Um, Michael Tausig and Citrin Gill's, um, Simran Gill, sorry, um, idea that somehow we need to account for ourselves as entities that are, in their terms, becoming palm, that we somehow are in the process of this strange relationship with this now global commodity and this now mm -hmm. global tree, or it's not a tree, it's actually a plant, technically. Mm -hmm. um, and so I here started thinking along with um, the, the phenomenal Annette Singh, uh, whose book Mushroom at the End of the World became a big hit in the last few years. She had a previous really wonderful book based on her studies of the uh, Indonesian forest and the various struggles there called Friction. And there she argues that, you know, we we are told, you know, by people like Bill Gates, who wrote a very famous book called um, the, the Way Ahead, in which he introduced this terminology of frictionless capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, we're told by the sort of neoliberal ideologues that we're going to eventually live in a world where if we just let global capitalism spread endlessly, it will create a level playing field where, uh, you know, smart, industrious people anywhere in the world can compete and thrive. And there will be sort of a full meritocracy. And this will be the way to overcome the legacies of colonialism and imperialism that have, you know, robbed one part of the world to enrich another part. Um, and what Singh points out is that, of course, first, this, this claim is patently false and self-serving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but second, that there's something interesting that happens in this metaphor of friction and frictionlessness and that capitalism actually works through frictions. It works by encouraging each of us to to engage with the frictions in our life, where local customs meet global imperatives, where communities fight against markets, all of these moments of friction where capitalism rubs up against the life world. And I borrowed this term and, and kind of said, yes, and also perhaps there are these things in capitalism that attempt to, to eliminate that friction. And I think palm oil is one of them. And of course, it's useful uh, the metaphor really works because palm oil's first use when it was, um, you know, discovered, quote unquote, by Europeans and imported to Europe was as an industrial lubricant for the Industrial Revolution and for uh, locomotives and steam engines. So thinking about um, palm oil as the grease of empires, the subtitle of the book implies, allows us to recognize that across these last 200 years of palm oil's sort of imperial history, it's in different times, in different places, and in different ways, acted as a kind of lubricant for capitalism. Mm -hmm. And in the first place, that's a very literal lubricant for the machines of capitalism. Today, I argue, it, it still per performs that role, but it also performs another very important role, which is it is as I put it in the book, the fat of the world's poor. It's the cheapest um, edible oil on the market. And it feeds a growing proportion of humanity who've been displaced from their means of producing their own cooking oil and their own food, who are dependent on capitalist markets to buy the things they need, but who are largely denied access to meaningful or sustaining wages within the market. So you have hundreds of millions of people around the world depending on palm oil for their basic nutrition, uh, at great cost to their own health and to the global environment. And there's something here that teaches us about the way that capitalism is shifting and changing over time. Yeah, I'm, I actually have your book right here. I'm, gonna, I, I'm trying to remember if it was the first chapter, uh, like after the end, I think, yeah, it is the first chapter. You you actually have like, it, it's from the, the film Black Panther, 
right? This Marvel film. It's it's a good film. It's uh, as far as the you know the Marvel films go. It's it's you know provocative in certain ways. Um, there's this famous converse, famous scene where you have the the quote villain, uh, Killmonger, who is uh, oh, played by Michael B. Jordan, I think is the actor's name. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, anyway, his character, he's at this kind of fictionalized museum in in uh, London, and is mm-hmm. looking at these uh, West African uh, artifacts, uh, you know, museum pieces, and. Uh, Anyway, you sort of you, you you quote all that, and then you get into sort of what that re- really represents is this history of, of course, uh, the British Empire's uh, conquest of West Africa, uh, the looting of their sacred objects, cultural objects, and then bringing them to a uh, a museum a- uh, in London and being like, "Hey, look at these! You know, they're they're exquisite, but also they're primitives, right? Like it's this kind of interesting." contradictory way of looking at it but um anyway i really want to start there and i don't want to give your book away too much because i really want people to read it but i do want to talk about that scene and how that leads to how you discuss uh really you know because talking about palm oil we're talking about really some of the roots of empire and how this colonial project the imperialist project of the united kingdom uh into west africa how that ties into the how modern capitalism emerged you know like Mm -hmm. the it set the stage for that um so if you could talk about just give us a a bit of a brief history lesson of how palm oil was introduced into the global i think it's instructive because it really does tie into the kind of matrix of exploitation uh of, of global capitalism um and particularly the Edo Kingdom, because I, for me personally, I didn't really know anything about this kingdom and its relationship with the British Empire. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, that scene in Black Panther, I think, is really iconic. I, it's funny, actually, I read somewhere that the director uh, tried to get the British Museum to allow them to do filming in the British Museum, and they, the British Museum refused. And so they had to kind of make up this weird composite museum called like the Museum of Great Britain. Yeah. Um, but the room in which Killmonger, we first meet the kind of um, the villain Killmonger, who's also in some ways a hero, is an ambiguous villain, mm-hmm. um, is made... It, it has bears an unmistakable resemblance to um, the Sainsbury wing of the British Museum, in which are housed the stolen Benin bronzes, which are a set of artifacts, not all of them made of bronze, uh, some of them made of brass, some ivory, some from other materials, that represented the loot of the British uh, raid on the Edo Kingdom in 1898. Mm-hmm. Um it, during which time the British uh, imperial forces destroyed the capital city of the Edo kingdom and displaced its king. The capital city was one of the kind of wonders of the African world and commented on by European um, traders for hundreds of years prior for its incredible earthen uh, ramparts and, and earthworks and mm-hmm. uh, the kind of majesty of the kingdom and impressiveness of its public, its public works. Um, so this um, the invasion of the Edo Kingdom though came quite almost at the end of the imperial project or at the at the end of a certain phase of the imperial project. It's and in some ways 
it's not the most significant of the British ventures into Africa, but it is in many ways, I think for me especially, very demonstrative because the British went in and destroyed uh, the kingdom and deposed its king in order to secure that its territory for palm oil plantations. Palm oil had a very, very important part in the Edo kingdom and in most West African kingdoms and uh, polities um, for centuries. But uh, this is late into the 19th century when the British were interested in ensuring that there was this cheap source of fuel, uh, sorry, a cheap source of oil that could be used for industrial lubricants, but also increasingly for soap and candles. And at that time, uh, the manufacture of tinned cans, which were important to empire, mm-hmm. um, as well as increasingly uh, processed foods like margarine. What had happened was that uh, thanks to the kind of protagonism of enslaved people themselves, as well as their would-be allies in Europe, uh, the British Empire had been forced to abolish the transatlantic slave trade starting in the early 1800s, uh, although it it would be many decades before it was fully abolished. Um, And this left a merchant class in Liverpool, mostly, who had become vastly wealthy through the triangular trade between um, England, the West African coast and uh, the Caribbean to search for a new commodity. And they were able, through their trade networks that had been established in the the West African um, slave trade, to very quickly pivot towards the, the export of palm oil to Europe making use of the same kind of coercive trading relationships that they'd established for the taking of humans. Uh, And through the 19th century, for the first half of the 19th century, that was mostly just Europeans kind of showing up on ships or starting coastal entrepots and uh, loading palm oil into their ships. But starting in the mid-19th century, European hunger for palm oil um, meant, and other commodities from inside of Africa, meant that Europeans tried increasingly to cut out the African middlemen and move inland and set up plantations and trading factories that could allow them to get even cheaper prices. Uh, And this was also the result of rivalry between different European imperial powers, between Germany, France, uh, Portugal, Spain, and England. Um, And essentially, by the end of the century, they had met uh, in Berlin at the famous Berlin conference and carved up uh, uh, Africa into different chunks. And Britain got the chunk that would later become to be known as Nigeria. And in that space was the Edo kingdom. Mm -hmm. It was one of the last kingdoms that sort of held out against British imperialism because it was so far inland. Um, And inland, it had been difficult for Europeans to access because of malaria and other tropical diseases, but also because it was difficult before that time to move uh, European troops in inland uh, for a whole variety of logistical reasons. New technologies, including the steamship, allowed that. Steamships, I should mention, that were greased by palm oil. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the invasion of the Edo kingdom represents this kind of uh, a key moment where we see something uh, rear its head. And for me, that's not just a moment of kind of imperial butchery where they, you know, go in and and take what they want and destroy a whole civilization. It's also something of it even even darker still. The Edo Kingdom, one of the ways that this was sold and justified to the British public was that this wasn't just about the British Empire supporting a bunch of British capitalists to go in and smash and grab what they wanted. It was claimed 
not without evidence that the Edo kingdom, the Oba, the king of the, the Edo kingdom, who was kind of a spiritual figure as well as a political figure, uh, was performing acts of human sacrifice. Now, mm. the historical record on this is um, there's a debate. Many historians suggest that the forms of human sacrifice that the Edo kingdom was practicing are probably closer to capital punishment, punishment for crimes. Mm-hmm. Other people think it was a, you know, a gory religious rite that was inhumane and horrible. Mm-hmm. There's no justification for either. But this was in any case sort of salaciously embellished in the British press to uh, allow – to then sort of license the British to go in and destroy the kingdom in the name of bringing civilization, Christianity, and commerce. Um, and what I think disappeared from view here and the, a theme that runs through my whole book is that ultimately the British, of course, licensed themselves to do this, saying, oh, we need to intervene against human sacrifice. And yet they themselves are an empire of human sacrifice. The destruction of the Edo kingdom was a massive form of human sacrifice. Hundred, thousands of people were murdered in the name of this invasion. Meanwhile, across the ocean, you know, somewhere in the range of a sixth to a fifth of the population of China had become dependent on opium, thanks to British exports from India, which was itself suffering massive famines, thanks to British uh, agricultural uh, and economic projects. Around the world, there was a whole empire of human sacrifice. And yet somehow the sacrifice that was being performed in the name of empire and capitalist modernity was hidden from view by this fixation on the sort of salacious uh, rumors of African human sacrifice. And so uh, throughout my book, I try and come back to this theme of sacrifice, including into our present age. Yeah, that that was something I was going to bring up. And of course, you pretty well elaborated on it there. But the the theme that runs through the book that what I was really picking up on, and you state it really clearly in the book as well, is, is human sacrifice and our how it's used as a way, like you just mentioned, uh, you know, as as a as a pretext for invasion and colonization. Um, but the ways in which human sacrifice are also invisibilized within, in order to justify a, a system such as you know whether that be. Uh, kind of a colonial system, uh, or, you know, of course, capitalism. It reminds me, I can't help but, like, draw in some of the discussions around COVID, too, of, like, Mm -hmm. human sacrifice to keep the economy running. Yes, these people were going to die anyway, so let's keep it going, you know. Um, It it feels that um, as things proceed, human sacrifice is implicit or explicit depending on how <laughs> on what's i guess the 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 with covid it was in everyone's face and is in everyone's face mm-hmm. with palm oil like so many commodities on the global market it is ubiquitous and yet invisibilized and so the amount of exploitation and human sacrifice required to produce this product as cheaply as it is produced and sold mm. Um, requires enormous amounts of human sacrifice. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a question in there, but I really wanted <laughs> to appreciate that point. Yeah. You know, if you had any more points to elaborate on there regarding um, how human sacrifice is mm-hmm. is used both mm-hmm. as a weapon and and also as something that's just um, obscured. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think about it so much. And I wanted to avoid in this book just saying, you know, capitalism is a system of human sacrifice. Gotcha. Because, like, there's not actually that much <laughs> use in saying that. Because, like, even if we don't call it human sacrifice, capitalism's crimes against people on the planet are so severe and so grave that they don't need hyperbolic embellishment. Right. Um, so I'm not just using the term human sacrifice just to for the shock value. I really believe there's something interesting at the bottom about this, interesting and terrifying. I mean, yeah, on on one level, if we just zoom out and you look at the planet as if from Mars, you would be hard pressed not to say that humanity is in the grip of a uh, of a violent theology to a cruel god called the market who demands sacrifices from and you know that that humans should allow each other to die and perish. Um, and, you know, an anthropologist from Mars who looked at the whole sweep of human history and the many different societies that have practiced human sacrifice would probably not find that ours is all that different, except for the fact that in other societies, they at least do the courtesy of, you know, bringing their sacrificial victim up to the top of a ziggurat and cutting out their heart, whereas we just allow people to die. Mm. Um you know, or we subject them to circumstances of premature death, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore puts it, uh, through the kind of um, the logics of race and colonialism and neocolonialism and imperialism. Or, you know, we create a world of such scarcity that it triggers wars that murder people uh, indirectly. Um, so in a sense, I wanted to draw our attention to that and suggest you know, that maybe there's more continuity than than change. And I do this in order to break with um, people who I see as kind of, in some senses, theocrats of the market. There's a strong tendency in neoliberal philosophy to suggest that, that the capitalist economy and the capitalist system is singular in human history because it is the triumph of modernity and the enlightenment. It is the manifestation of a metahuman intelligence for the distribution of goods and services that emerges from competition rather than from the particular political or ideological or religious uh, fixations of a particular person, a particular ruler. And therefore, it allows us to kind of um, transcend violence. You know, like someone like Steven Pinker is perhaps, you know, mm -hmm. one of the most sophisticated um, proponents of this. But Hayek, Friedrich Hayek also makes this point that, you know, ultimately, if markets are let to do what they should do, we will see a diminishment in human violence mm -hmm. um, and certainly a transcendence of human sacrifice because in the very narrow modernist interpretation of human sacrifice, it's this sort of atavistic barbaric, barbaric custom that is just performed by people who are so beguiled by their belief in a false God that they justify their own violence in the name of religious expression. Um, there's other anthropological work that suggests that in any society, sacrifice is always has is somewhat politically expedient. Like human sacrifice is often undertaken, the, the sacrificial victim is often a prisoner of war or a slave or a member of a lower caste. And it serves this function for the rulers of that society to intimidate their underlings who fear that they too might become the sacrificial victims. But something else very important begins to emerge too from that anthropological literature, which is that in many of those societies, the human sacrifice you know, it, our temptation today is to look back on the sacrificial actions of the Edo kingdom or the Aztecs and say, oh, well, this was just a kind of elite of priest kings who terrified their people. 
mm-hmm. into submission. There's something else, though, that I think is more important for us to focus on, which is that if we actually probably went back and asked these people, like, why do you do it? They would probably say one of two things. One of them was they would say, well, oh, well, the person we sacrificed was not actually a human. So it's not human sacrifice. They're mm-hmm. they're a different group. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're subhumans somehow. Mm-hmm. They're from that other tribe over there, or they're from, you know, they, they've been selected by the gods to be sacrificed as sort of a subhuman character. But the other thing that they would say most likely is, look, you know, like, it's horrible. We admit it's horrible. We don't like cutting, you know, doing this horrible stuff. But look, if we didn't do this, then the gods would starve or the gods would be displeased. And that would unleash incredible terrors and calamity on the whole population. So sure, it's pretty, you, you can complain that it's pretty bad that, you know, this person got their heart cut out, but would you rather that there were a hurricane that killed hundreds of thousands of people and possibly destroyed our whole civilization? Right. You know? And I think there's something very similar that happens in the logic of the market. Like, if you go to someone today and you say, like, uh, you know, in the palm oil industry, for instance, and say, like, why do you have to abuse workers and chop down rainforests? They would say, look, um, we don't like to do that. First of all, we have no control over it because it's all of these subcontractors and sub-sub-subcontractors mm-hmm. who are mm-hmm. operating out in the jungle we have no control over. And why don't you go hassle the government who should be policing it, not the industry? But the other thing they would say is, look, you know, this is the market doing its work. Uh, this is the benevolent providential market. And, you know, you do-gooders who are telling us to, you know, pay everyone a living wage and respect orangutans, what you don't realize is that the market will take care of this eventually. And the market kind of knows best. Um, if we were to intervene and jeopardize the free market, we would actually, on a global scale, be jeopardizing a source of wealth, peace, uh, progress. So, and we would be throwing ourselves backward into a state of barbarism. In order for that cosmology to work, that cosmology of capitalism, we need to retain this idea that these other civilizations were somehow more barbaric and more terrible than ours. Sure. All civilizations have their problems. Human sacrifice is never acceptable anywhere. But somehow imagining that we're not a society that performs human sacrifice allows us to invisibilize the fact that this sacrifice is happening in plain sight. And if it's allowed to happen to the people in the palm oil industry in Act 1, then in Act 3 it will be allowed to happen to all sorts of people, all sorts of vulnerabilized people in the pandemic. The final thing I would say about it is like uh, one of the big theoretical presences that haunts this book is that of Georges Bataille, the, the radical French theorist who was, a, you know, tried to rebuild an entire political economic theory uh, on the notion of sacrifice and on the notion of abundance. And very briefly, his argument is that, you know, like every society necessarily is a sacrificial society because the problem that societies face is not, as we've been told by economists, scarcity that there's scarce resources that we need to fight over. The problem for every society is that there's too much energy, there's too much abundance, and every society has its methods of getting rid of that abundance. Mm. But some of those methods are more peaceful than others. So typically in, in indigenous societies, there are sacrificial customs. There are ways of honoring the gods. There's ways of giving thanks that don't descend into ritualistic murder. But to the extent that societies deny that there are that there is this fundamental abundance in this you know beautiful world we share and an abundance of human creativity and ingenuity and cooperative power, you get these strange moments where societies that become obsessed with scarcity also become the ones that are performing the most heinous uh, and and bloody acts of sacrifice. Somehow, there's a strange irony there that he tries to understand in his alternative political economy. 
And I think it's well worth us continuing to dwell with that, that societies like ours that deny they are sacrificial are in some ways the most sacrificial, but that that is something that can never be admitted or accepted. Mm. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. The, the more society denies it's br- <laughs> denies the brutality or the cruelty that that keeps it functioning is actually the most cruel, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I, I really want to talk about this concept. I'm shifting gears a little bit, but um, actually there's, there's several major points here that I really want to <laughs> uh, hone in on. But uh, one of them is this concept of commodity fetishism. Mm. Um, because I think, because as you, you know, talk about, of course, what happened in West Africa, the colonization uh, process, um, you know, eventually palm oil, of course, becomes this incredibly essential, seemingly essential commodity uh, regarding like uh, hygiene, right? Like mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, lev- uh, I'm going to say lever or lever now is unilever, unilever, however you say that correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this this major corporation that's trying to market like hygiene products to the uh, to the British population and, and probably elsewhere as well probably the United States. I, I don't know, but, um, you know, it's just like, it's just fat. It's like this thing where you're tracing the history of this commodity and how everything from, again, the history of imperialism, colonialism, uh, slavery, uh, plantations, our relationship with, with ecology, uh, and, and just like marketing and how we view our bodies and our relationships with our society that we are a part of this this product this commodity is fits right in with all of that so I, I would really love to talk about this concept of commodity fetishism I think this will help us understand our relationship a bit with not only just palm oil but probably a lot of other commodities as well mm-hmm yeah absolutely well uh, let me begin with what happened and then I'll sort of go into the theory but um, basically over the 19th century and specifically in the latter half of the 19th century um, someone who was born at the early beginning of the 19th century would not recognize what the world looked like at the end of it if they lived in Manchester or London or indeed New York or Chicago. Uh, there was a massive transformation not only of the landscape but also of customs. And one of the customs that changed quite dramatically is is customs of cleanliness. I mean, first of all, it was a, it was a time of mass urbanization and that urbanization was also often concentrated in slums and tenements that were constructed poorly and quickly for uh, the urban working poor. And in that context, there was also an incredible hunger for the middle classes to distinguish themselves from the working classes. And one of the commodities through which this was achieved was soap. So soap used to be typically made in the home, almost mostly by women in in Western Europe and the United States. Um, But it wasn't used as often. And there were different standards around cleanliness uh, not necessarily as salacious as we tend to imagine, like people only taking a bath every once in a while, but certainly different. And over the 19th century, companies, including importantly uh, Lever, the Lever Company, which would later go on to be Unilever, was at the forefront of uh, harnessing these new technologies of advertising in print culture and billboards and uh, other forms of advertising to promote the idea that to be a good upstanding citizen uh, and specifically to be a good upstanding white citizen was to use soap and to be clean. First, this was marketed to the middle class, specifically to middle class women uh, who were increasingly encouraged to stay home and, uh, you know, take care of the home. 
into sort of unpaid reproductive domestic labor. Um, and it was suggested that by using soap, you could sort of protect your home from the evils of the rapidly changing world. Later on, this advertisement reached to working classes as well. And this has all been really wonderfully documented uh, by the anthropologist Anne McClintock and her famous book, Imperial Leather, from the 1990s, where she goes through how uh, soap became a major uh, commodity that really changed the way people dealt with one another and engaged with society. Um, and she details the way that that was achieved in part by drawing on a kind of longer lineage and helping to reproduce a longer lineage of racist imagery. So you'd have all of these images, for instance, of black children become, being washed white uh, by the soap. You'd have images, in, you know, Pears Soap was the most famous brand for doing this, that depicted, uh, you know, the bringing of soap to the colonies as white man's burden, as, you know, the need for white people to go and show uh, people around the world how to be hygienic. I mean, the irony and the terror of it is just beyond belief, but it was very effective at the time. Now, McClintock um, talks about this as a form of fetishism, and here she's drawing a language of fetishism from Zygmunt Freud and Karl Marx. Freud is where we get the typical association of fetishism now with sort of sexual fetishism. Mm -hmm. And for Freud, if a patient came, you know, as a psychiatrist, uh, if a patient came to his office presenting an obsession with feet, a certain body part, a certain type of person, a certain right. object... He would sort of say, well, like this is evidence that there's been some hiccup in that person's psychic development. And so they need a kind of proxy or prop. They're not they don't have the proper or appropriate sexual orientation. And so they they somehow project onto something um, in order to make up for this lack. Mm. Um for, for Freud, it was relatively harmless most of the time. I mean, OK, certain people have uh, fetishes you know, that are harmful to others. Uh, but most of the time, Freud wasn't so concerned about it, except as a way of getting to his patients deeper traumas that he believed were sort of buried in their psyches. Sure. Marx, on the other hand, presents us with this notion of commodity fetishism. And this is a term that's often misunderstood, and you can understand why people must understand it. Most people think commodity fetishism means that you come to become obsessed and fetishistic towards like your iPhone or towards a sports car or yeah. towards a pair of shoes. And you're like, oh my God, if only I had this pair of shoes, it would make me feel whole. If only I had this sports car, then you know, uh, I would be attractive, et cetera, et cetera. That's only a small part of what Marx means by commodity fetishism. He actually means something different. He's talking about the way that we forget what went into the commodity itself. So you hold a high phone in front of you and you're like, wow, wasn't Steve Jobs a brilliant guy? Wasn't Apple an amazing company? Mm -hmm. And what you forget is that, in fact, this phone is the product of thousands of sets of workers' hands, from the people who dug the minerals to the people who transported those minerals to a refinery, to the people who worked in the refinery, to the people who transported the refined things to a factory, to the people who worked on the factory, to the people who took the stuff from the factory and moved it to the store, to the people in the store, to the designers, blah, 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 blah. There's thousands of hands that have touched this. And those people for Marx, I mean, those are the proletariat. They're people like us. They're non-owning producers for the most part that are alienated from their labor power, just as most of us are. And so in some ways, we created the iPhone for him. And, you know, it's maybe easier to imagine this if you just think about the like, limited context of 19th century Manchester, right? You get a new pair of shoes and you say, aha, now I have shoes. I feel good about myself. You're a worker in a, uh, let's say, a candle factory. What you forget is that, in fact, it was your neighbor who lives beside you in the slum and your neighbor in the factory next door who built those shoes. 
Um, yeah, and right. there's this process of forgetting in the commodity. And Marx is interested in a kind of radical remembering that, in fact, everything in the world around us we recognize as a product of our own alienated labor. And therefore, if we remember correctly, we could take it back. Okay. So palm oil, I think, uh, so for, for McClintock, soap, which was mostly at that time made of palm oil and olive oil, um, represents this commodity fetish where, you know, you begin to project onto the soap this idea of cleanliness, this idea of community, of wholesomeness, of, um, you know, um, of completeness mm -hmm. uh, in a world that is chaotic. And you forget that the soap actually had an origin, that it had an origin in people's labor, people just like you. At the same time, there's another thing that's, that's happening that's a bit deeper, which is quite interesting, which is that at the same moment, and, and sorry, the other thing I should mention about McClintock is that this fetishism begins to revolve around notions of race. So mm -hmm. through this advertisement that associates the use of soap with whiteness, people become to fetishize this notion of whiteness, which is a complete fabrication. Sure. I, I mean, we know this from that recently defamed critical race theory, there's no such thing as whiteness. It's a complete social construct. Yes. But it's a social construct that's orchestrated through commodities like soap, through these kind of advertising, the print history. Okay, yeah. the final piece of this puzzle is that it turns out that this term fetish itself is a kind of fetish. It, it's a term that originated from European traders' encounters with African cultures in the 13th and 14th and 15th century, where uh, European traders who are most, you know, all at that time Catholic, encountered very complex civilizations, including the Edo Kingdom, for instance, who had incredibly different spiritual practices. And often, and David Graeber has made this point in his recent book, uh, The Dawn of Everything, David Wengro, often those societies were much better at preserving people's freedom and much better at having some modicum of social equality, or at least the social inequalities they had weren't quite so deadly and dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, essentially, what you had was a moment of shock when Europeans began to encounter these other civilizations. And one of the ways they compensated for that shock that destabilized their own self-understanding was to say, oh, those people are all just fetishists. You know, they mm. all believe in false gods. They right. look at a rattle and they think that that's a representation of a god. But in fact, they just made that rattle or they, you know, they think that drum summons the spirit of the ocean, but they just made that drum. Ha ha. We get it. They don't. Meanwhile, of course, Europeans were, you know, doing weird stuff with Catholic transubstantiation, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. It's a very fetishistic culture. They all are. Yeah. So essentially the idea of the fetish itself has this kind of racist colonial history where it projects onto the other the thing that one doesn't want to admit about oneself in the same way that this uh, accusation of human sacrifice projects onto the other the thing that one doesn't want to admit about oneself. And Freud and uh, Marx being these uh, sort of... Um, marginalized Jewish intellectuals in the 19th century, they come across this anthropological language of the fetish and they say, aha, it's not the quote-unquote savages over there in Africa who are the fetishists. It is we, the Europeans, who are the fetishists. And both Marx and Freud develop the fetish into an acute tool for a uh, sort of scalpel, if you will, for dissecting the psychopathologies and material pathologies of Europe. But baked into that language is already, and this is a point I take from J. Lauren Matori's excellent book on the fetish, baked into that accusation of the fetishism of the other is still this kind of um, racist colonial world ordering, because it's a metaphor that's borrowed from the de degradation of African religions uh, that then is applied retroactively to Europeans as a mode of critique. It's mm, fascinating.
Yeah, and I, I want to tie this into what's happening contemporarily with, with palm oil production. Uh, we, we sort of talked about that at the beginning regarding, of course, mm. the effects of the uh, war in Ukraine. But I, I just want to kind of give an understanding of several things I want to bring up here, which is, one, just the like what the palm oil palm oil industry is today where it's at geographically it's i'll just say this quickly it's in southeast asia for the most part right i think a large share of that yeah, 70 to 80 percent comes right. from even indonesia though, and malaysia right and even though of course palm oil as you described that originally comes from west africa so it's interesting mm-hmm. in and of itself but um you know palm oil has been a target palm oil production and the plantations that are built to produce them, to produce it, um, has been a target of nonprofits, uh, environmental campaigns, right? Like we need to, uh, you know, mention the uh, heartrending images of orangutans, you know, uh, clinging onto the last tree and that's been raised for uh, palm oil plantations and so on. Um, yeah, you know, this really does tie into this sort of culture of charity uh, mm. of... Of, of you know boycotting certain commodities in order to to you know uh, to move towards more sustainability, uh, even labeling certain products that have palm oil in it uh, as being sustainably uh, harvested or produced, um, where sustainability itself becomes a commodity mm-hmm. um, as another form of commodity fetishism to sort of like invisibilize the actual still high levels mm-hmm. of exploitation that occur uh for palm oil palm oil uh, production um yeah i really just want to get a picture and i want to draw a picture here for people listening of what palm oil production looks like today mm. um as well as sort of the i don't know how to say this but uh, you know how the sort of nonprofit model of addressing some of the abuses mm. of palm oil production fits very neatly within sort of a capitalist system itself. It's not actually fighting the system in any substantial way. It's, it, it, it is in and of itself a commodified form of, of activism, if I want to use that word yeah. itself. Uh, if you could kind of elaborate on that, please. Certainly, yeah. I mean, um, the one of the great the best scholars on palm oil and labor abuses in the world oliver pie has made this argument quite well that sustainability it does is a kind of modern commodity fetishism and in that sense he's he's i think arguing that it it serves some purpose for those of us who are interested in being conscious consumers it it helps us develop a certain kind of subjectivity or a certain kind of identity in the face of global inequalities but it is not actually particularly effective in many cases and the the textbook case that he goes into and many others is this organization that was founded more than 20 years ago now called the roundtable on sustainable palm oil or the rspo which was an attempt um you know after a huge wave of ngo protests against the abuses the labor abuses and environmental abuses by the palm oil industry to bring to the same table uh major exporting corporations plantation corporations governments in malaysia and indonesia and other places uh companies that bought palm oil and a select group of environmental and labor ngos to sort of come up with a set of voluntary guidelines by which exporting companies could label their products um, sustainable. Now, we could go in and talk for a long time about all of the problems with self 
uh, regulation and self-reporting. Essentially, to cut a very long story short, many of the NGOs that started in the RSPO have left um, uh, um, and have suggested that, in fact, it's not an effective organization for stopping deforestation and labor and human rights abuses. Um, but it does present the consumer in the uh, global north who sees the label sustainable palm oil on the end product with the illusion that they are participating and somehow making the world a better place. The problem here, there's a number of problems. I mean, first of all, it's bogus for the most part. It's not sustainable. Uh, it's maybe sustainable for the companies in question, but it's sustainable only in the narrowest possible sense. You know, often the holistic sense of what it would mean for something to be sustainable is not taken into account in these certifications. And in any case, uh, there's tons of problems with the organization and the way it, it certifies. But there's another deeper problem, too, and I think this comes back to the question of fetishism. It to use the term from the French Marxist theorist Louis Althusser, there, there's something in that label of sustainability that hails the consumer into a certain relationship. It says, when you see that thing that says sustainable palm oil on the package, it asks you to take a certain role, let's say. And that role is of a benevolent consumer who's trying to do their best in the world and who makes good consuming decisions and through their consumer behavior tries to shape the world around them. Mm. Um, and this is bogus and dangerous. First of all, to the extent that we believe we can vote with our dollars, we would have to admit that those with more dollars get more votes. And that's not democracy. Um, and we live in a world of great, ever-widening inequalities. So essentially, if we're agreeing that the only way you can, you can have an impact on the world is by what you buy, then we're basically suggesting that billionaires should run the world. They already do run the world. They're running it into ecological catastrophe. So yeah. this idea that somehow we can you know, change the world through our consumer practices is very, very dangerous. Um, you can understand why people would gravitate to it because most of us feel helpless and hopeless. And so doing something small at the grocery store, buying this product and not that product can feel meaningful. But what it occludes from view, what it hides from us is the fact that actually if we want to have a system that is truly sustainable and truly honors life and doesn't depend on human sacrifice, then we actually need to make much more fundamental transformations. So one of those transformations is like we need to ask why it is that there are populations in certain places in the world that are so readily exploitable and why some populations around the world uh, seem to have so much cash to be able to buy the products of their exploitation. And to answer that question, we would need to go back to the history of colonialism. And to answer that question, we can't just be satisfied with saying we're going to buy different products. We actually need to talk about things like reparations and the redistribution of global wealth. Right. Further... If we're going to challenge that way Marx talked about commodity fetishism in the discourse of sustainability, then we need to not only ask questions about sort of distribution of wealth, we also need to ask questions about a global, um, a global solidarity between producers. We would need to recognize that we all have a role in producing this world together and reproducing this world together, and that if we're going to have a sustainable world, it's got to be a fundamental shift in how we make the stuff we need. We can't, no you cannot call sustainable a system where, you know, 80% uh, of the world's population works in incredibly exploitative, uh, unhealthy conditions to produce basically uh, goods for the other 20%. Yeah. You know, we need to think through how we're going to produce for our needs and provision ourselves as a global species in a way that isn't catastrophically violent. And that would require 
a lot. And I think my the hope and the gamble in my book is that by looking at palm oil, we won't just all become incredibly depressed and say like, oh my God, you know, we all depend on this sure. horrible commodity, which is soaked in blood. It's to actually say like, let's continue the work of trying to imagine and then enact how we would take responsibility for ourselves as a global species. And I think that means a number of things. I mean, I think certainly it means that we need to support um, absolutely grassroots struggles in palm oil producing countries by indigenous people, palm oil uh, laborers and affected communities to take back their autonomy and to fight for their rights, to reclaim land, to dispossess their dispossessors. I think all of that's extremely important. But also the rest of the world needs to reduce our dependence, not only on palm oil, but on all these kind of unsustainable imports. Um, and that means, for instance, trying to find other sources for the things that we use palm oil for. Um, for and sure. that, I think, also comes back to where we began with this question of how global supply chain disruptions mean that we become more dependent on these global commodities and more dependent on the exploitation that brings them to our proverbial tables. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is... I just want to highlight this term. It's new for me. Um, we've, of course, I, I talk a great deal about what's described as the Anthropocene. Mm. Um debated whether that's a legitimate like geological you know era or whatever um but nonetheless we are entering into a a time of catastrophic global shifts in the climate system and and, and global environment um i've also heard the term uh, capital scene which is to say like you know global capitalism's shaping of the earth um but the other term that came up and and, and you did not come up with this but you do highlight it in your book which is the plantation Ocene. I think I'm saying that correctly. Plantation Ocene, yeah. Because, <laughs> of yeah. course, palm oil requires plantations, which are... <laughs> this is how fucked... I'm sorry. This is how fucked it is, because it's like... It's a direct... The, the lineage between modern plantations for mm. palm oil production is essentially what was... The plantations that existed under, you know, Chateau slavery. So mm -hmm. that line is really direct there. I just really wanted to highlight that term because I think that that uh, mm -hmm. it just needs to kind of sink in for people that are listening for myself as well as like the ways in which, you know, the plantation model itself has shaped the modern world uh, to such a profound degree. And not to take away from yeah. your final points that you just made there. I, I don't want to end this on such a bleak note, but <laughs> <laughs> but it is it, it, it's I don't know. I, I really mm -hmm. do want people to check this book out. And it is such an education, and I really appreciate it as well. I was I was kind of debating how to begin this interview with you, whether I should say, you know, bring up what you provided in your introduction to the book, which is like, this is what this book isn't. And you're like, <laughs> you're pointing to all these incredible texts, these incredible works that have been done about the actual, like, detailed histories of palm oil. Um, and you point to those those people who wrote that and those books, and you're like, these are really excellent for this. That is not what this is. This is something different. Mm -hmm. um, but as someone for myself who was just not very well educated in, in, in this subject, uh, it was an incredible read for me. And uh, Thank you. And I just want to ask one last thing, and this is really just about what you're doing now. Of course, this book is out uh, through Pluto Press. I really like Pluto Press, or sorry, Pluto Books. I really enjoyed that publisher a great deal. And uh, you are, this book is a part of the Vanguard. Vagabonds. Vagabonds, sorry, God. I yep. have the note right here, and I'm saying everything <laughs> incorrectly. 
uh, Vagabonds, thank you for correcting me, uh, mm-hmm. which is a series of short radical books from Pluto. Um, you are the editor of those as well. Yes. Um, could you talk a bit about just what this series is and like, you know, sure. give us a bit basic understanding of what it is? Yeah. Yeah, this is a series for books that are at the intersection of sort of scholarly inquiry, artistic uh, engagement and intervention, and activism. And it came out of a frustration I had that a lot of the time when I was writing as an academic, I would get responses in peer review where they'd be like, this is too polemic, this is too political. And I would be like, well, I happen to think everything's polemic and political, but most of it's just polemic and polemical for the status quo. Mm -hmm. Um, But I really wanted to create a space for short text. These are all about 100 to 130 pages long Mm -hmm. that really um, are in the spirit of uh, the tract or the essay or the pamphlet that the thing that you really want to put in the hands of people who are in struggle today as a, as a thing that they can read. Um, and as a, as a short sort of um, theoretical and practical intervention. So we try and publish books that are not necessarily going to be published anywhere else um, that are taking daring approaches. Sometimes those approaches, daring approaches to different topics. Um, sometimes they're daring approaches to with the way you would write about a subject um, and we try and bring them out uh, relatively rapidly. Um, and it's been really gratifying to work on a series like that and to have the support of Pluto, which is, you know, they've been around for 50 years. They've published yeah. many, many fabulous books. So, yeah, it's something I really enjoy doing. And uh, we have a bunch more exciting ones in the pipeline coming out soon. Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at yours is the fourth in the series, this book, Palm Oil. And uh, there's... I'm I'm looking to just maybe purchasing uh, the ones that have come out previously, and uh, I don't know. I sometimes when I when I read things, sometimes I'm always I'm looking at it through the lens of being an interviewer. So I'm like, would this be good for an interview? Should I? No, I could just enjoy it and learn, you know. Right, right. Um, but I I really do, uh, Max. I appreciate you for what you've put into this work, um, and for taking this time to to have this conversation with me. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank it. you so much. It's a, it's, it's a privilege. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash last born in the wilderness and if you support my work there you will gain early access to these interviews before i release them publicly Um, you will find other exclusive content there as well so to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast however you choose to do that thank you very very much if you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast you can do that through two means you can call the phone number 208 918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long. Please let me know what your intention is with the message so that I can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast. If you would like to also just go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com, you'll find a link at the top of the page that'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.